0: Hello, this is Pastor Nathaniel, and you're listening to the Etta Talk for the Eddy Walk podcast. Here you'll find messages meant to edify and encourage God's people in the maturity, purity, and unity that comes from following Christ. From devotional thoughts to sermons from our Sunday morning services, my prayer is that the time you spend listening to this podcast will help you grow closer to our Lord and also lead you to loving others like He loves us. Let's get right to it. I'm tired of doing nothing. That's a phrase that I rarely say in this season of life because I'm incredibly busy. If you guys were to look at my calendar, you know that's true. But between working multiple jobs, being a full-time grad student, Daughter, sister, friend, girlfriend, pet parent, and gardener, I always have something to do. Granted, if for some reason, on a very rare occasion, I don't have anything to do, and I'm not sound asleep, I can get a little stir-crazy. But that's not what was going on when I said I'm tired of doing nothing. I said that a few weeks ago, to my parents in our kitchen when I was preparing for yet another very busy day. I hadn't been sitting still or procrastinating. I wasn't tired of resting or coming back from a vacation. I was weary from something very, very different. Let me tell you the story. So my morning alarm went off right on time, and my morning alarm is very intense, I have it set up to turn on all the lights in my room, blast the news, blare music. I'm a very sound sleeper, so my alarm goes off, probably wakes up half of spring water in the process. Uh, but as usual, I rolled over to silence all of the chaos and check the notifications on my phone. And I don't normally check social media right when I wake up. Usually I wait until I have my breakfast or you know, I've settled into my day a little bit, but For whatever reason, I said, oh, I'm going to check Facebook and Instagram this morning. So I opened my social media apps, and I was met with a flurry of posts revolving around the same topic. I won't tell you what that topic was, but I will say that it's one that I care about very much. And I'm not the kind of person who thinks that social media is an appropriate place to debate things and to discuss issues. I really don't think it is. I think that's best saved for one-on-one conversations over coffee. Um, But this time, I, I really thought about commenting something because I wanted to say something. My heart felt like it was begging me to do something. So I typed out a response, But I did what I often do, have a typed response and then do nothing with it. And it sits on my phone until I find it a few months later and delete it like, huh, what was I thinking? But I made my way downstairs and I complained to my mom that I didn't like my options. Because I hated to stay quiet about the issue, but speaking out would do no good. It would just flame things up and it wouldn't really change anyone's convictions anyway. And my parents agreed with that analysis, and they reminded me of that analysis, so my mind was at ease, but my heart ached because I still felt that need to do something, to do anything. And that's why I said, I'm just tired of doing nothing. Perhaps you can relate with that complaint. You open Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and you come across a whole barrage of posts that leave you wanting to respond, to react, leave a treatise in the comments. Maybe you watch the news, and you say, boy, I'd like to teach that person a lesson. Boy, I wish I could give them some advice, or I want to give them a piece of my mind. Maybe you see on the news that there's this hurting family, and you wish that you could help make sure that they get justice. What do you do when the matter at hand is so monumental and there's no clear way through? There's somebody in the Bible, I'm sure many of them, but there's one in particular I want to talk about this morning who went through this same situation. This man is Abraham. Now, Abraham had a nephew named Lot who lived in the sin city of the ancient Near East, Sodom. And I don't say sin city lightly. I mean, I know we call Vegas sin city, but Sodom was sin city. I mean, we have sins named after this city, okay? <laughs> like it it's bad. The city had fertile grazing ground, and that's all it had going for it. Because sin was so rampant in this town and no one pretended that it wasn't. It was a sort of place that you wouldn't want to raise a family in. It's not a place where you could find a Bible study and attend. It's a place where God was at best forgotten and at worst treated with blatant contempt. It was was a messed up place. And Abraham only had one stake in this city. His nephew Lot and his other relatives who lived there. Four people. That was it. That was Abraham's only interest in this city. Abraham, of course, he lived outside of it. He and Lot, a few years prior, they had... Their sheep herders had gotten into an argument over how much land they could graze the sheep on, and Abraham said, look, I'll go out this way toward the wilderness if you want, or I'll go toward Sodom with this land. Just pick a place. Let's let's keep the peace. And Lot had chosen to go to Sodom. So Abraham's living out more in the wilderness area. Um, And Abraham had helped rescue Sodom before. So in Genesis 14, we read about these kings who came up with this idea that they were going to ransack Sodom and take all of the inhabitants captive, and they did. And Abraham found out about it, and he basically said, oh, ho, ho, not on my watch. And so he gathered all the men in his household, all the men in his workforce, and they went and attacked those kings and won, and they brought all the inhabitants of Sodom back home. Now a few years have gone by, And three visitors had just visited Abraham and promised him and Sarah the child that they had always wanted. And now that the visitors had eaten and they'd fulfilled their task with Abraham, they left the tent and they started going in the direction of Sodom. And Abraham walks along far enough to see them on their way. Uh, These visitors are really interesting. Two of them, we find out, are actually angels in disguise. And the third is the Lord himself. We call that a theophany, where God appears in a visible form before the New Testament. So this is what's been going on. And as they're walking, God decides that he needs to have a talk with Abraham about Sodom. The other two keep walking, but God says, hold up one minute, Abraham. We need to talk. So their conversation is recorded in Genesis chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles... Would you turn there this morning? We're going to read verses 16 through 33. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, What if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, What if there's only 40? He said, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your mercy, for your justice, and for your love. I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to the words that you have for us this morning. I pray that you would help me as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So something I find really interesting about this passage is that Abraham talked to God at all. I don't mean the fact that God told him, hey, just as a heads up, I'm going to destroy your neighboring towns, so it uh, might be a little hot tomorrow. Abraham answers back, and he starts bargaining with God about the people of Sodom. He, what he doesn't do, he could have said, okay gone home and ate some leftovers. He could have said, finally, God, I've been waiting for this conversation. You know what? Turn the brimstone up 10 degrees. Don't do anything yet. I'm going to go get my chair and I'll be right back. Right? He could have done that, but he didn't. And the question I want to pose is, aren't we tempted to say similar things when we consider God's judgment? And your reaction is probably going to be the same as mine when I asked myself that question. I was like, no, we're too sanctified for that. But really, though, when you think about it, we do similar things all the time, right? I mean, we smirk when political leaders fall. Sometimes we outright laugh at the TV. We insult the authorities we disagree with. We casually and emotionlessly sling around verses about God's judgment and about his justice that he promised. Or we do the opposite. We take the okay route, where we act as if we never knew sin's gravity and the terror of God's judgment to be true. So we live with apathy. We look at the world and we say, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Or we say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so... It's like we sit on the front porch and don't warn our neighbors about a tornado headed their direction. And all it does is make us bitter and spiritually sleepy. And Abraham had every opportunity to respond the same way. God didn't ask Abraham a question. He gave him a statement. So Abraham wasn't required to respond, but he did. He stands where he is, and I imagine he and God kind of standing at a, a bit of a lookout where they can just barely make out the city in the distance. And Abraham's looking in that direction with his aged brown eyes. And he starts remembering the faces of the people he helped rescue. He remembers the cries. He remembers the screams. He remembers hearing the stories on the way back. He remembers the children clinging to his robe for protection. And for a moment he can see past the horror of their sin and he recognizes broken and misguided hearts. And he knows that God is right to be angry. Abraham's probably angry too. He's heard the stories. He's gotten the news. He's received letters from Lot. He shuddered at the evil rampant in the place. Perhaps he even saw some of it going on when he was with them those few days. And so he's quiet for just a moment, I imagine, trying to make sense of his emotions. Because all he knows is that he's aching. He's aching for the people. He's aching for lost hearts. He's aching for justice. And so he finally speaks to the Lord, and he says, what about the righteous? You wouldn't really punish them along with the wicked, would you? Far be it from you. Far be it from you. You are the judge of all the earth. Promise me you're going to do the right thing here. What if there's 50 people? Can you promise me that for 50, you'll show mercy on the city? And I imagine God answering back in a soft, confident, unwavering voice and saying, yes, if I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. And I think for just a second, Abraham's heart flutters. Right? He's just been assured God is merciful. God is just. Both of these work hand in hand here. Abraham could have gone home, but he's still aching. And he says, God, what about 40? God says, for 40, I will spare it. That doesn't make Abraham comfortable either. So he basically says, please don't think that I'm protesting your justice or saying that you don't have a right to wipe them out because you totally do. Don't think that I'm ungrateful for the mercy you've shown. But where do you draw your line if there's 30? What does God say? He says, I'll spare it for 30. And as Abraham keeps looking out over the valley, his heart is begging him to do more. And so he says, God, look, I'm really not trying to offend you but I was gutsy enough to ask before, so I might as well go ho-hog now. What if you can only find 20? God says, Abraham, I will spare the city for 20. He says, oh, great, God, that's, that's awesome, but what about 10? It's a fifth of what I asked before. Would you spare it for 10? And there's something really amazing about that request because Abraham knows that he has family members living there, right? I always wondered, why didn't Abraham ask for five? Why at ten was he like, yeah, okay, that's cool with me, thank you. Why not five? Well, I found out he basically is asking for five because he's counting on his nephew Lot and his family to be righteous. That's a household of four. So when he's asking God for ten, what he's really asking is, God, if you find six more people in that city, So in a way, he is asking for that smaller number. If there's just two or three families in the whole city, will you save Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says he will. Think about that. God will extend his mercy to two huge cities because of ten righteous people. The devastating thing is, we know how the story turns out. God doesn't find even ten. And if Abraham had asked for five and said, you know what, God, find one more righteous person, just one in addition to my family, God wouldn't have found that either. Now, for the practical application part of this, I'm not going to call our area Sodom. I'm not calling our country, our continent, or our world Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want to ask you this. If God would spare an appallingly wicked city on behalf of ten righteous people, what could he possibly do for our area and for our world on behalf of his children? What if we are willing to stand in the gap like Abraham did and say, God, you are just and you are merciful? Show mercy on our land. Show mercy on our city. Show mercy with the people I work with. Show mercy on our government leaders. Show mercy. I think that the most beautiful prayer in the Bible was said by Jesus on the cross. as his arms are stretched out and he's dying. He looks down at the people crucifying him. And he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, forgive them. They don't know that they are putting the Messiah you promised to death. Lord, forgive them. They don't know the pain that they're causing both of us. Father, forgive them. They don't know that they're rejecting salvation. Forgive them. They don't understand that they are killing the love that they have been looking for all their lives. Father, forgive them. They don't know that they need the mercy I'm asking you for right now. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And imagine if we were to pray that prayer. Imagine if when we watch the news or when we read Facebook, instead of getting all fired up, we say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Imagine reading the news, and instead of posting about it on social media or grumbling about it, We pray for God to show mercy. What about instead of grumbling, we ask God to work on that person's heart and while he's at it to keep working on our own? What if we can look at others with the eyes of Jesus and say, yes, they deserve every ounce of judgment that God can possibly dish out on them, but they are so loved in sin's punishment it's so great that I'm going to do everything I possibly can to help them find mercy. And I'm going to stand in the gap for them. And I'm going to beg God to show them mercy and to show them grace. Think I'm crazy? Has Jesus preached this brand of crazy? In Matthew 5, verses 44 through 48. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, the tax collector's reference, he's not talking about the CPA or the accountant that helps you with your taxes every year. See, in ancient Israel, tax collectors were the picture that you would find in the dictionary next to sinner, or it would be a similar word in the thesaurus, because they were known to cheat and rob and to cooperate with the Romans who had taken over the city. So basically, a bunch of traitors. So Jesus is saying, aren't even they loving those who love them? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Those aren't easy commands, but they're just that, they're commands. They're not suggestions, they're not mantras, they're commands. Now, some of you might be thinking, Abriana, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus had no problem whatsoever talking about hell and God's punishment, and you're right. That is because God is patient. He's not a pushover. He's merciful, but he's not soft. Judgment is coming. When Jesus comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead, period. The redeemed will spend eternity with him. Others won't. And on that day, there's no changing our minds, and there's no changing God's mind. Abraham could plead for, for mercy till he's blue in the face, and there's no changing God's mind. And it is a good thing to hate sin. That's a very good thing. That's a righteous thing. God hates sin. He can't stand it. And as children of God, it stands to reason that we ought to hate sin too. That's a good thing. If you can turn on social media and you can see on TV and something makes you feel sick to your stomach, if something pricks your conscience, and if something makes you say, God, would you intervene and take care of this mess? That is a very good and holy thing. The problem comes is what we do with the sinner. Because we hate the sin, but we have to love the sinner. God is just. He's going to take care of everything. Don't you worry about that. Judgment day is coming. Justice is coming. And God's not going to bow out. He's not going to chicken out going to carry it through. But God is also love, radical love, love that we can't even wrap our minds around. One of few highlights in 2020 for me was watching a play by Sight and Sound that they put on TV for everyone during the pandemic, and the name of that play was Jesus. If you ever get the chance to watch it or rent it on their app, please do it. It is Incredible. So powerful. And there's one scene in it in particular that took my breath away when I consider the love of Jesus. And in this scene, there's a kind of a quiet alleyway, and Judas walks on, and he starts singing this song. And in the song, he starts wrestling with all that he sacrificed to follow Jesus. About how heavy the burden is, how high the demands are. And he starts contemplating how he's just made a deal to betray Jesus. And it gets to the point where he is so bitter and so upset that he is shaking and sobbing and gasping for breath by the time he gets outside the building where they're going to have the Last Supper. Now Jesus is upstairs filling a basin with water, watching Judas throughout the window. Judas doesn't know Jesus is watching him. So Judas goes up the stairs. He knocks on the door. Jesus throws the door open. He says, Judas, good to see you. Come on in. And Judas is avoiding Jesus because he knows what's about to go down. And Jesus ushers him to a seat. And he kneels down to wash his feet. And Judas is writhing the whole time, trying to get away. And Jesus is washing his feet. And he said, Judas, come sit next to me. He goes, no, 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 Jesus. Maybe maybe you should ask one of the others. He says, Judas, please, will you sit with me? And I've heard it taught before that in ancient Jewish custom, there was always a host of the Passover. Usually that was the rabbi or the head of the household. So Jesus was the host, of course. But the seat next to the host was a seat of honor. And since we know Judas and, Ju- and Jesus reached their hand into the same bowl, odds are good that Jesus gave Judas that seat of honor. And you know what I wouldn't do if I was Jesus. I wouldn't have given him the seat of honor. I wouldn't have let him into that house at all. And I certainly wouldn't have washed his feet. Tell you what, it's a good thing that I'm not God, because if I was, my wrath would have been more than evident in that moment. (laughs) And the last thing I would do is treat Judas like a treasure. But that's the first thing that Jesus does. And after Judas leaves, what does Jesus do? He laments that his betrayer will never accept salvation. And here's something incredible. You will never meet or think of a person that Jesus does not love. You'll never meet or think of a person that Jesus would not wash their feet. When we realize this, walls break down. I think sometimes we like the idea of a slap-happy savior. And that's what some people may have expected of the Messiah. They may have imagined that finally God was going to come as a warrior. He was going to tell off his enemies, call for fire and brimstone, and his Twitter account was going to be an awesome collection of roasts, shutdowns, and judgments. But that's not who they got. They got a Lord who loved, a Savior who served, a Messiah who laid down his life for others, a God who washed feet. What do you do with that? What do you do with a Jesus who would give Joe Biden and Donald Trump both a hug? What do you do with a Jesus who would eat with protesters and have ice cream with police? What do you do with a Messiah that would just as willingly die for Ukrainians as he would for Putin? What do you do with a Jesus who washes the feet of everyone on the ballot, cherishes each angry media poster, and speaks to the slow poke ahead of you, making you late for work. A Jesus who loves your difficult bosses and coworkers, a Jesus who loves those people whose sins make you nauseated. A Jesus who speaks the truth and simultaneously love. What do you do with a God like that? You talk with him. That's what Abraham did. Abraham talked to him. You learn from him. Like James and John did. You follow him. So, in closing, I'll give you the title of my sermon. It's called Do Something. It's called this because at the beginning of the message, I told you I was tired of doing nothing. And because Abraham modeled something for us, and Jesus commanded us to do something. This something is the very best we can do, it's a hard something. I get that. It is something that God has been working on me about for the last several months, and I am still not perfect, and I hate to say it, but I am not going to be perfect until the day they put me underground. Until I see Jesus face to face, I'm going to mess up. It's hard. Loving your enemies is not fun. (laughs) Jesus never said it would be easy. But that's how the world knows that we're God's children. That's what the world needs. The world can't afford sleepy Christians who set up their folding chairs and either sit back and eat popcorn or excitedly count down the days until those pesky others are forced to eat crow. The world needs Christians who will dare to intercede for them, who will dare to be an Abraham. The world needs believers who will say, God, have mercy. Children of God who will cry out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And Abraham's quote to God is one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible, and I use it all the time. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Because the answer is yes. The judge of all the earth will indeed do what's right. There is one unanswered question, though. And that question is, will we do what's right? Will we model Abraham and Jesus himself And display radical love and mercy for those that we disagree with. For those who hurt us and others. For those we believe are messing everything up. Because doing so isn't nothing. It's a hard, holy, and very best something that has the potential to change everything. I'm going to close us in prayer and I'd like to ask Paula to come up afterward and play the doxology for us. And then once that's finished, you all are dismissed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. You are the perfect justice that we cry out for. You are the perfect radical love that we desire. You are perfect, and you are holy in all that you are, in all that you do, and in all that you have planned. Lord, we live in a world that is incredibly divided right now. It always has been, but it seems like it's especially worse now. And Lord, the the enemy is trying to get us to turn against each other as well. I ask that you would help us as we model Abraham, as we model you, as we show your unconditional love to others. Give us the strength and the courage to hate the sin and love the sinner. Use us as your hands and feet in this world. Let us be examples of what your love is like. Help us as we love our enemies and as we pray for those who persecute us. May we show others the same love and the same mercy that you've shown us. And thank you for all that you've done, Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved so that we can stand in right relationship with you and be counted among the righteous. Lord, we pray for all those we know who don't know you, who aren't saved, maybe in our families, in our towns, in our workplace, our schools, our state, our nation, and our world. Pray that somehow they would find your mercy, that they would find your grace. Lord, we thank you for what a loving, wonderful, merciful, and just God that you are. We love you, Lord. Be with each of us as we go from this place this morning, and I ask that you bring us all back safely next week to worship together again. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate us on iTunes or like our page, Springwater Church of the Nazarene, on Facebook. Have a great day and Lord bless.